This is With You in the Weeds. Do you ever find yourself stuck in between what you know to be true and what you actually experience? Or the difference between where you are and where you want to be? Well, if so, you're in the weeds. And like weeds, those tough places keep coming back. I'm Lynn Rausch. And I'm John Tennant. As counselors, Lynn and I deal with those weeds all the time. Together, we designed this podcast because we want to be with you in those weeds, kind of like God desires to be with us. Hmm. Now, that idea will change everything. So we hope you'll listen in and let us be with you in the weeds. Let's get started. Well, welcome back to With You in the Weeds. I'm Lynn Rausch. I'm a licensed professional counselor, and I'm here with two of my close friends and colleagues, John Tinnan, who is my co-host in this podcast. John, hey, how are you doing this morning? Good, it's good to see you, Lynn. You take us into this. This is going to be great. I know. I'm excited about today's episode, and I also have my husband here next to me, Shay. Good morning. Good morning. Good to know that I'm a friend and a colleague as well. And my husband. So, yeah. And we're not going to get into the weeds of marriage today. No, not today. Okay. Not today. Not Some today. other episode we will. <laughs> I feel like I'm the one out here. So <laughs> we'll entertain our listeners with, um, some stories from marriage and that'll be fun. But yes, today we are into part two on the topic of depression. Part one was covering the roots of depression and the many reasons why we may feel depressed. And today we're going to look at how do we manage the weeds of depression? Because we know it's just a, a part of life that we can't avoid. And so we're going to tackle it from um, several different perspectives, the spiritual, the physiological, the relational, the emotional. And um, as we get started here, uh, Shay, just jump in and tell me a little bit about how you used to view depression. Yeah. You know, when I graduated from seminary, what now, 25 years ago, I, I always had such a negative view of depression or, or depressed people. I don't know if it was more because my view was shaped from movies or whatever it was. And so, um, but then I, I remember my thinking began to change. I, I read a, a, a biography written by uh, John Piper on William Cowper. And, and this guy in 1800s in England, he struggled with depression uh, his entire life. And yet he was a faithful believer, and it just kind of normalized depression for me a little bit. Um, it, one of the reasons maybe why he was so depressed is you know, he lost his parents at an early age. All of his siblings ended up dying, and he just there were just different uh, periods of time throughout his life, uh, four major periods where he struggled with depression. And uh, his pastor actually at that time was a guy named John Newton, who many of you know, know wrote Amazing Grace. And, mm -hmm. you know, for 20 years, Newton was his pastor and his friend and and helped him in the midst of his depression. And, and uh, it, but his story helped me to see that his depression wasn't sin. Uh, but for whatever reason, we don't know. He struggled his entire life, but he but he persevered, and he's someone that we admire. And then, you know, he just illustrates when we go to the Bible, we see people who are depressed, and so we shouldn't stigmatize it. Although, as we're going to see, it's complex, and it sometimes can be because of our own sin. But but it uh, but John, I think you have a similar story about Mother Teresa, right? Well, yeah, you mentioned uh, John Newton, Amazing Grace. Um, years ago, maybe 10 years ago, PBS did a documentary 
on that song, Amazing Grace. Apparently, it is the most famous song in the entire world. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I saw U2 in concert, uh, the 360 tour, 80,000 people in Atlanta, and Bono got them all singing Amazing Grace a cappella. That's really and cool. You're talking yeah. a secular audience, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they all they the knew words. the words. That's yeah. awesome. Uh, so this was Newton, right, comforting right. his friend Cowper. And the Newton was a Puritan. Puritans get a bad rap. Um, but they got some things right, mm-hmm. like really right. Uh, I have a mentor friend who's read quite a bit on the Puritans, and he'll talk about, well, he has a quote that he uses. Brother Bartholomew was taken with the melancholy, <laughs> and the Puritans surrounded his bed all afternoon on Sunday and sang hymns, and Brother Bartholomew started to smile. Um, there's a connection uh-huh. there that yeah. they knew how to make relationally, and Newton did that with Cowper. That's a great example. Then you've got Mother Teresa. Uh, just to normalize how uh, people can feel really dark, mm-hmm. in fact, um, you know, the church uh, mystics have coined the phrase, the dark night of the soul. Mm -hmm. And Mother Teresa went through something like this, where for 25 years, the last 25 years of her life, uh, she was feeling cut off from God, abandoned, dark. And I actually listened to that on audiobook and came away feeling like she's either psycho, nuts, something's wrong with her mentally, or she really was in tune with God in a way that a lot of people aren't. And I think it's the latter. She was puzzling to me, but the Catholic Church would not publish her journals until three years after her death because they were embarrassed by how she would write of feeling the absence of God, feeling like his love was not there, like he had abandoned her. It was a really dark time in her life. <laughs> and and understandable, right, John? I mean, she she spends her entire life, right? With the poor, the with the oppressed, with the sick, with the diseased. Um, yes. People real, who did... real world stuff. And you tend to be, you might be depressed if you, if you live the life that she lived and saw the things that she saw. Right? Yeah. Well, now you're jumping into kind of a counselor territory where you sit with the suffering and you experience their suffering vicariously. And that's all she did. Mm-hmm. And she bore the weight of that. So, yes, understandably. But her darkness was not a sin. Uh, It is normal if you're in touch with how broken the world is, it's normal to experience sadness. There's a lot to be depressed about in this fallen world. Every human being gets it right, right at the very beginning when they're slapped on the bottom and they scream. There's a lot to cry about, right? Um, So, God, I think the reason that we go through this, and this has anchored me a lot as a Christian and as a counselor and as a pastor. God never designed us to experience loss. He designed us for a full life, a life of adventure, a life of exploration, a life of fulfillment, a life of connection. That was his idea. We were the ones that entered into a separation from God. And now he's pursuing us, but we're, we're in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. So we experience losing things, things dying, things breaking, relationships fading, 
all sorts of loss. And, and that really plunges us into despair, which to rule it in immediately as a sin is to do a disservice to the human and to being made in the image of God. Sometimes it is, but not all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, John, for normalizing that, because I think oftentimes as Christians, we immediately judge ourselves for having feelings of depression, and we really want to kind of nip that in the bud from the beginning. Um, As I mentioned— You know, Barney Fife talks about that. Nip it. Nip it in the bud, Andy. (laughs) Nip it. (laughs) Who's who's Barney Fife? Barney Fife. Andy Griffith. Oh, the Andy okay. Griffith show, okay. Barney Five. Great. Have you been watching? Radio? Yeah, I don't know if I'll edit that oh. out or not. Oh, okay, Boomer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so with with all of these emotions, um, we are going to take a four part approach, kind of like four legs to a chair. We're going to look at four aspects of these emotions and how we can manage them. Um, and the first one we're going to tackle is the physiological aspect of depression, because I think that some of our listeners, to be honest, need to attend to this aspect first and foremost. And if that's you, here's what I want to say. Um, We've been talking about the roots of depression in these episodes, and um, you may actually have a genetic or a biological predisposition to depression. Depression and anxiety often runs in families. I very often encourage my clients to ask their parents or their grandparents or other living relatives if they've ever suffered from depression or anxiety and been treated for it. Of course, interestingly, um, and, and perhaps not surprisingly, a lot of times these are things that are never talked about in families. And so clients often don't know, but it's worth doing some digging to see if there's a shared familiar, familial history of depression, because that could, off the bat, just kind of explain maybe why a person is struggling. Um, But another thing to consider is that, you know, if you're just someone who's looking around and you're thinking, you know, I can't really even identify anything specific as to why I'm depressed. I just, I just feel really low. I feel really down. I feel sluggish. I feel stuck. Here are some basic physiological things to think about. First of all, our diet. Um, The food we eat, if we're eating highly processed foods, lots of sugar, we're lacking proper nutrition, that can create deficiencies in our bodies that actually changes our mood and can lead us to feelings of depression. In fact, studies show that vitamin D can play a role in the production of serotonin and dopamine, which are considered the happy chemicals in the brain. And many of us are deficient in vitamin D and we don't even know it. So, um, I'm sure you guys have heard of SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder, right? I was born with it. You were, born, <laughs> yeah. were you born Every in Every season of life. Oh, every season yeah. of life. Gotcha. Okay. Well, for most people, they experience that in the winter when, you know, we, we don't have as much exposure to sunlight. And so those low vitamin D levels can um, create that uh, setup for Seasonal Affective Disorder. And so these are like basic things that... You can get some blood tests done. You can just really look into those symptoms, and some of those are just pretty easily fixable. But yes, when systems, let me just simply put it this way, when systems are off in our body physiologically, that can impact our mental health. Absolutely. And that is a known fact. Now, if you want to dig deeper into that, there's a lot of information out there to look at. Sure. 
And I'll put a tagline at the end of the show today saying, do not try this at home. <laughs> yeah. We are not medical we doctors. We are not medical I, I'm doctors. Really... <laughs> so another component to look at is our hormones because they also play a huge role in our mood. And if they get out of whack and imbalanced, that can also lead to severe depression. Um, the most recognized instance might be that you've heard of is just postpartum depression, right? Your body's, you know, hormones are out of balance and women suffer from depression. And this is a real thing and that needs to be recognized and attended to without well, It's a serious judgment. thing, too. It's a very yeah. serious thing. Yeah. But just my point there just being simply that hormones can clearly, yeah. you know, cause different reactions. Um and so physiologically, one way to manage depression is through exercise. Uh, studies show that just 20 to 30 minutes of cardio exercise a day has a positive effect on your mood and cognition. So even just taking a brisk walk, getting your heart rate up is going to have a positive effect on our emotional health. Um, but last but not least, as we're on this topic of the physiological, I want to say that medication is there to help us. And I have seen it have a profound effect on someone who's struggling with depression. It can stabilize a person who's really in the fog of depression or who is working through a traumatic life event. And their coping mechanisms are just not able to keep them afloat. When we go through trauma, our limbic system is activated. We might be in fight, flight, or freeze. And medication can just really help um, buffer the effects of those traumatic events and help us you know, move forward. And so um, if you are prescribed an antidepressant, you know, that's could be a real game changer for you. But usually, even when that happens, it's recommended in conjunction with therapy. Yeah, some of the research on this is interesting. If a person is going for medication alone without a parallel track of processing what's happening in their psyche with someone who can help them piece things together and make sense of what's happening to them. If they just go with the medication alone, there's a spike right. in hope. Oh, I'm going to get better now. But the root issues aren't addressed. And then they fall into depression again, and they have an even greater hopelessness because the hope of medication has failed them. So, because medication is not the ultimate answer to begin with. Um, I'll say one thing about what I've learned with my clients that is very common. People live in high stress environments. Mm -hmm. Prolonged mm -hmm. stress boosts cortisol in the mm -hmm. system, which inhibits the brain's ability to process serotonin. Uh, one just kind of street level way to understand it. If you are living under constant stress, that, stabilizing chemical in your brain serotonin it gets burned up faster than a race car mm -hmm. and it can get depleted in which case your brain is really struggling to move through things that sure. normally it could dance around and move through rather easily mm -hmm. it's like putting rocks in a hose the water is going to be obstructed it will get through but it's just going to have a harder time medication can be helpful for that when you go through very difficult seasons of life, but always think of medication. I like to use the analogy as floaties. So if you're teaching a child to swim and you just throw them in the water, they panic. But if you give them floaties, they relax. 
and that helps them to stabilize. But they still have to learn to swim. Mm-hmm. So medication is not mm-hmm. the ultimate answer, but sometimes it does help. And if you need it, you can go to therapy for years and not make much progress because your brain is not able to piece things together. And I've had clients that I've worked with for months, and once they got onto medication, whereas they weren't making much progress before, it's like all of the sudden, once their brain's able to process, they start piecing things together that we've tried to put together for months, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden it starts falling into place. So it's something to consider, but it's not the ultimate answer. Right, John. So if it's not these things, if it's not our, uh, our our physical health or our diet or some other reason, or or maybe in addition to these things, let's look at how the Bible speaks about this issue. And, and so I'm going to jump in here and I'm going to address the spiritual leg of depression. And to be honest with you guys, it, it's not that simple. Uh, even in the Bible, depression is complex. It's not quite so black and white. Yeah, what we're giving you today are some good ingredients to manage the weeds of depression. And I really like how you explain the complexity of depression uh, from a scriptural viewpoint, because it's so often used, you know, from a biblical perspective in an inappropriate way of applying it, like all black, white, all good, all bad. Like you're the depressed or not, but it's more complicated. It's more complicated. So let, let's look at some instances, okay, in the Bible. For, for example, we have Saul uh, in the Old Testament and his relationship with David. Now, remember, David had—this uh, is why while Saul is king, uh, David had, when he was younger, had killed Goliath and was the hero in the nation of Israel because of that. And, and Saul, looking at David, he, he's envious of him. And and because of that, he became so envious of David. He's getting all the praise. Everybody's, you know, he's the man. And 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 because he was so envious, it, the Bible says that that Saul dealt with depression and melancholy as a result of that. And, and, and by the way, there was, I hate to mention this, but there was. I'm just going to give you what the Bible says. There was a demonic element to that where he eventually goes off the deep end and even tries to kill David because he's so jealous of him. Uh, See, Saul, and and this is the key, guys, had made something more important than God. He he was losing his power, and and he realized that, and it it led to spiritual deformation in his life, uh, which is always the devil's goal in our lives, right? Instead of spiritual formation, um, it's always spiritual deformation. Yeah, I'm glad you're mentioning the demonic because I think it has a very clear place. And the way I've come to understand it is Satan studies our stories, our lives, knows our history perhaps better than we do, and knows our weaknesses and mm-hmm. learns how to work with what's there. You know, in a very real sense, the Holy Spirit, when we become Christians, works on nature. So if you have a jerk who becomes a Christian, what do you get? You get a Christian jerk. They still have to work on their jerkness, exactly. and the Holy Spirit is going to work with where that person is. The enemy works in a similar fashion. He studies our weaknesses. He studies our character flaws and plays them against us. And so he studied Saul, mm-hmm. and he worked with what was there. Yeah, yeah. He's spiraling downward. 
And, and, and so let's not dismiss that sometimes, right, unacknowledged sin and Satan is real. Now, we're not blaming everything on the devil here. Um, you know, you're trying to find a parking spot at the mall and, and you don't get one and you think, oh, the devil caused that. But, but, but this is the picture that the Bible uh, presents to us. You know what's funny about that? When I find a prime parking space, it's a joke between me and my wife. I'll say, now I know that God loves me. <laughs> and then what I'll follow it with is, never mind the cross. I got a right. parking space. <laughs> Isn't that how the mind works? Yeah, the enemy does study our stories and uses our weaknesses against us. And I have a particular story related to this passage. Years ago, I was planning a church in San Diego. It was growing uh, it was an energetic time. Everyone was excited. And I was uh, in Southern California. It's a very unchurched territory. And I was probably the fastest growing church uh, near the downtown area. And I was sort of hitting my rhythm. And all of a sudden, I heard through the grapevine that this guy named Dick Kaufman was coming from New York City, and he was Tim Keller's executive pastor, and he was going to start a church planning movement in downtown San Diego. On the outside, I was thrilled, and I thought, well, this is great. It's all about the kingdom, right? Mm -hmm. uh, praise God, we need more churches. Uh, but on the inside, there was a bit of me that was, wait a minute, like, I'm the closest guy to downtown, and people are going to be interested in his church. And now I have competition. Mm -hmm. I was very careful not to use those words, but that was the thought pattern that I hadn't yet articulated. There was just an uneasiness. And then it got really bad when people started calling me from New York City, telling me, hey, we're relocating to San Diego to help Dick Kaufman oh. <laughs> plant this church. And can we worship at your church and serve at your church until his church starts going? In the meantime, oh, wow. <laughs> Ouch. And, you know, on the outside, I was like, kingdom. well, this is all for the kingdom. I'm thrilled. Let's see what right. God does. But I remember literally one of those phone calls hanging the phone up and staring at the phone, feeling angry. Mm. And then Dick Kaufman came to town. And Dick Kaufman met with me and said, I really like the vision of your church and what you're doing. And I look forward to partnering together. And I was all smiles on the outside. But I just remember thinking, this guy has resources that I don't have. And I've been right. like plowing this field and it's been really hard. And here comes this guy with all these resources and all of this money and all these people relocating right from New York City to help him. And what about me? And that was the feeling. Yeah. So this grew over a period of about a year. And I remember listening to a sermon by Tim Keller on this passage where Saul was jealous of David. And I should probably go back and, and listen to it again just to rehearse. <laughs> so good you know, the heart. It's yeah. Re yeah. rehearse my memory on the yeah. specifics. But I remember listening to that talk that he gave thinking, if I don't deal with this, this is going to turn into bitterness. The enemy is going to use it, and it will be destructive to me. It's mm -hmm. going to be destructive to what God wants to do. And this might bother me, but 
so what? It's not my business. This is God's field. He can put me in whatever corner of the field he wants. But at the same time, I was being very honest with what was happening in my heart. And I remember Dick wanted to eat lunch with me and talk about church planning. And I drove to that lunch and I remember praying, you know, God, I really need to tell him. I just really need to tell him that I've been jealous. And then there was another part of me. He's like, no, 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 no. Don't be that honest with him. This don't, is stupid. Don't admit weakness. You don't know, it's like weakness, the two angels right? on yeah. your shoulder almost. Yeah. One of them says, go tell him the truth. Be a good guy. And the other one's like, are you stupid? No. So yeah, the Holy Spirit won out. And I don't even know if the theology of that is good at all. Mm -hmm. But there were parts of me divided. Mm -hmm. One part was I need to tell him. And another part was, no, you need to hide. And fortunately, by God's grace, I told him and I remember telling him and I sat down at lunch and I said, Dick, before we even talk about church planning, you need to know that I've been very jealous of you. And in my heart, I've not liked it that you're here. And I don't like that. Um, and I want to love you well. And I don't want to be someone who stands in the way of what God's doing. But I've been jealous of your resources. Mm -hmm. And he honestly was one of the most amazing mentors I've ever had. And that's what he became that day. He became my mentor. I remember a tear coming down his cheek. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he said, I cherish that honesty. And he said, would you plant a church with me because you're the kind of guy I can trust? And he said, I love your heart. That's great. And my heart melted. Mm. I mean, even to this moment, yeah. I'm, I'm feeling yeah. the mm -hmm. impact of that because I thought, wow, here's a guy that can hear something I've done against him. And he's not using the word forgiveness, but he's forgiving me. Mm -hmm. And he's reaching out to me. And that felt like the gospel. And he became one of my uh, favorite mentors. And we planted churches together. And um, to this day, there's such a huge space in my heart for him. So the enemy, though, knew. He knew right. how to play on my weakness. Right. And he tried it for a year. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you shared that story, John. I, I mean, so many of us can relate to that, right? We we're all Saul's in, in the sense of we're envying someone else. And, and uh, when we make something other than God, the, the God of our lives, then we're, we're going to be depressed about it because our other idols, our other gods are always going to, to let us down. Uh, my, my tombstone should read, struggled with envy and jealousy of others and was depressed because of it. I'm, I'm serious. <laughs> you know, some tombstones let me read, write that down. loving mother, loving grandmother. Uh, but that, that phrase... It's a great characterization of my life. Uh, so, so we have the example, right, of, of, of Saul and David, but um, th there's another example we could talk about biblically, and that would be David himself. Um, so, so think about this. You know, because of his sin with Bathsheba, he commits adultery and then has her husband Uriah killed, right? The Bible in Psalm 32, Psalm 51 says he's down in the dumps. Uh, he's depressed because of his un, the unconfessed sin in his life. Um, he's miserable because of his sin. And, and in fact, in Psalm 51, we read about how his bones, he says, wasted away. And, and he was so miserable, and he doesn't find relief until he comes back to God and repents, and his soul is restored, 
And then it says that he ends up, when he, when he does that, he ends up singing the praises of God again. And so here we to see two examples, right? Sin, uh, David is down, he's melancholy, he's depressed because of unconfessed sin in his life. Uh, Saul, because he's made something else an idol in his life, power, he's depressed because he's comparing himself to other uh, uh, people. So those are two really good examples, I think, that we need to keep in mind uh, when we think about our own lives. And and again, I think in both of those cases, they probably felt so natural about what they were doing and what they were feeling. Like they probably felt like they had good reasons to be jealous, a good reason, right, to mm-hmm. take advantage of someone. Um, and it probably crept up like frog in the kettle. And so that sin got kind of creatively woven in, which is how the enemy works, which is why I think it's so important for us to know our stories. Yeah. Because sin is creative. The enemy is strategic. And we get, Hebrews says, to lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. So learning our stories is the disentanglement of woven in sin that begins to feel so natural. That's exactly right. And then it just strikes you. But there are other examples where clearly you have fear, anxiety, sadness um, that is not sinful at all. Mm -hmm. And the best example is Jesus, who on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he was the most spiritual man that ever walked on this planet. And yet, Here he is saying, God, you've left me. I feel like you've abandoned me. And his human side is crying out in anguish. And he's upset because he needs the disciples to be with him, and they're falling asleep in his greatest hour of need. And he's alone. And he's sad about it. One of his names is a man of sorrows. And that's because he did life right. So you can be very sad, very sorrowful. You can be depressed, and it's not always related to sin. This is the complexity of it. Yeah, John, you're exactly right. And and that's exactly what we see in Psalm uh, 42 with uh, uh, one of the sons of Korah. Now, Psalm 42 is one of my favorite psalms to go to or think about when I'm depressed, when, when I'm down. Uh, see, we're told that he, he, this guy is probably one of the worship leaders in the temple in Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and he's downcast because he doesn't sense God's presence in his life anymore. And so he says, for example, as the deer pants for streams of water, God, so my soul longs for you. People might be familiar with that verse. And what, what we learn is he's probably away from the temple in Jerusalem and worship. He might be an exile at that point in his life. And, and we learn in Psalm 42, he says his, his tears are his food. Uh, he's been mourning. He's been weeping. He's, he, he stopped eating. So there's a physical uh, part of his depression. And, and we also know that he's not in this state because of sin, like David. See, there's no criticism of him here for being depressed, but he's actually commended in this psalm, and Psalm 43, by the way, for how he works through his depressions, his depression. And one of the key ways he does this 
is he examines his heart. In other words, he asks himself the question. He says in, in Psalm 42, why are you so downco- downcast, O my soul? He asks himself, has something other than God replaced his heart's main affection? Is it money? Is it career? Is it power? Is it the approval of others? Is it maybe a loss of beauty? You know, you don't look the same way as you used to. In other words, has something replaced God in his life? And that's why he's depressed. That's the question that he asks of himself. And for him, for this son of Korah, the answer was no. But but it's a question I think that we should all ask ourselves when we're down. And, and, and he goes on then and he reminds himself in the psalm of what of who God is. And he acknowledges his hopelessness, and yet he still has hope. He says, I believe this to be true. I know who God is. Even though I don't feel his presence right now, even though I'm down in the dumps, I'm going to hold on to God knowing he's holding on to me. And so what he shows us is by faith, he's holding on to that which he knows to be true about God. And that's what helped him get through his depression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me let me let me just say this to to conclude. I, I, what I want you to see is that there are people in the Bible who struggle with depression, not because of sin, and who are commended for how they work through it. That's and a, so, and so, this guy right here in Psalm forty two is a model uh, for us to use. I, I'm so thankful for this psalm in my own life because it, it's here and it's meant to be used. You're passionate about it. I am. It's meant a lot to you. Yeah, I think about it all the time. Yeah, so let me see if I can just summarize some of these spiritual realities. Um, Depression can come from being in a spiritual freefall when we're consumed with envy, jealousy, bitterness, or even just carrying around the burden of unconfessed sin. And sometimes this shows up as a dark night of the soul, if you will. God does seem distant, and we feel shrouded in darkness. We don't experience comfort or joy or peace or rest or hope. But no matter what the reason, there are so many Psalms where we see the writer exploring and asking questions to try to diagnose his own soul. In fact, Shay, as you mentioned in Psalm 42 and 43, these same two questions are asked three separate times. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? And here is where we need to become spiritually intelligent. God invites us to step back and to look at our hearts. Because depression is like any other emotion. It's telling us that we have a problem, just like signals on a dashboard. It could be rooted in a lot of things. And we want to state again, feeling depressed is not a sin. And yet the mental exercise of stepping back and curiously exploring our hearts in the presence of God is a helpful fruitful, and I would even say a necessary endeavor in order for us to see what's going on inside of us and then be able to take steps to address it. So let's look at the mental aspect of depression. And the first one, and we're using the psalmist here as our guide, question yourself. Ask yourself good questions. Ask the question, why? Why am I feeling this way? Yeah, so the first thing is to just question yourself. Ask yourself good questions just as the psalmist does. Why? 
Why? Why am I feeling this way? Why is my soul distressed? So just start with that. And then secondly, reflect on yourself. What thoughts and beliefs are in play about your life? Do you have a cohesive narrative in your head about your life that's based on certain beliefs? John, you told a story earlier that helped us see where our story plays such a big role in how we might be interpreting life's events. Um, I think this is a great quote by psychologist David Benner. He says, it's not so much that we tell lies as that we live by them. I mean, if just think about that for a minute, we might be living out of a lie. You know, the enemy does work against us and he is going to inject thoughts that feel really true, but they're not correct. You know, when we have those experiences of, of hurt or pain or loss or wounding, um, we can adopt thoughts about ourselves like I'm unlovable or I'm a failure or I'm irredeemable. And these thoughts can begin to shape how we see ourselves, how we see the world, how we see God, and they can become the reality that we live out of. Um, the third one I would just say is now we need to talk to ourselves, right? Um, our self-talk is usually pretty lousy when we're depressed. And psychologists have named what they call cognitive distortions. Um, and so a few examples of those might be like all or nothing thinking, um, where we see things as absolute. We don't see any gray. Maybe, I, I can't relate to that no, at all. You can't, no, I know. You can't nope. relate to any of this catastrophizing. Yeah. I've read about these people, blowing, but I... I... <laughs> blowing things out of proportion, imagining the worst possible possible outcome in every situation this could that could go on my tombstone as yes, well that we, phrase right there I'll add that okay. one to your tombstone, yes. honey um or just self-condemning thoughts like i should or i must or i have to so this is when we need to challenge ourselves so as we're reflecting as we're questioning as we are um, looking at our thought patterns we need to ask where is my thinking distorted where is it out of line with god's truth what do i need to remind myself about. And as we work with our thoughts, that can often bring some relief to those depressive symptoms. We can't ignore the final piece of this, which is the relational aspect of managing the weeds of depression, which might be the most important and probably is. That's why we entitled this podcast with you in the weeds, because we need someone with us. Um, all of these ingredients are great, but you have to be with people who care for you know you, uh, love you, and will walk with you. People who, well, a move a body friend, like you kill somebody at midnight, who are you calling? I'm calling you, John. You're calling somebody that's going to help, that's gonna help you move the body. Hopefully not the body. I'm not answering the phone. <laughs> yeah, and then you want that person to stab you in the front. After they help you move the body, you need them to say, hey, we really need to think about this. <laughs> well, what are we going to do? I'm with you. What are we going to do? <laughs> you know, truth and love uh, combined. Right. You know, uh, the flip side of this and the whole relationship side is you may need to weed out some toxic people in your life that always make you down. I, I hate to say that, but it, it's so true, right? You probably need to think through and just say, there's some probably people that I can't have a relationship with because they're always, they're just toxic yeah. and they're not healthy for me. Uh, yeah. Great place to start. Get the little book by Henry Cloud, Safe People. Learn it. Yeah. Practice it. And, and if you can't weed those people out, you have to decide 
uh, in your mind that they're not going to feed into the main narrative in your head. Uh, they're not, they're not going to define the truth for you. You may need to come up with some strategies to deal with people like that. That's a whole nother podcast mm, yeah. on safe people, people to like limit in your life. Mm-hmm. I heard a funny formula recently, how to decomplicate your life. If that's even a word, uh, one, find the complicating people Two. Remove said complicating <laughs> people from your life. Three, enjoy your decomplicated enjoy life. Your life. <laughs> yeah, this is so good. And it reminds me um, at the beginning, we talked about William Cowper and he had John Newton as his pastor. And my understanding from that story, Shay, as you shared it, is that John Newton encouraged him and was with him, kept loving him even when he had those dark times. And so we need those people in our lives that are going to come alongside us and have faith for us when our faith is failing, when we are in the weeds of depression. So today, I hope that you've gotten some great um, perspectives, some insights, some takeaways as to how you can manage the weeds of depression in your life. Um, I'm glad we can be there for each other in the midst of it. Yeah, this, is, this has been great to be with you guys and talk this through. Hey, thanks for giving us your valuable time and allowing us to be with you in the weeds of your life. We want this resource to bring you hope and help bridge the gap between where you are and where you want to be. You can find our email on our podcast page. We'd be interested to know what you'd like to hear more of. Until next time, remember, God is with you in the weeds.